0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Supercharged Life. And I'm so excited about our guest today, Chef Rocco Dispirito. He has written five New York Times bestsellers. He's a recipient of the prestigious James Beard Award. He's in fact published 14 cookbooks in total, appeared on countless TV shows including my favorite the Doctors, and made his mother's meatballs world famous. So let's welcome celebrity chef Rocco. Thank you so thank much you, for thank being you're from here New York as
1: well. And you're a foodie and yes. my kind of people and you're a neuropsychotherapist and I have yes. to say that I'm a big fan of your entire community, every level of it, every person in it, very a <laughs> uh, bunch of very giving loving uh, helpful people in my life. So, well, you know, thank you. I've seen every kind of you know person that whose title ends in an ist. Yes. And uh, so, oh good. Well,
0: yeah. I know that you therapist, are familiar. Therapist.
1: neuropsychotherapist, Yes. You know, you're, you're, pharmacist. Yes.
0: <laughs> and you're very familiar with therapists because you actually started going to one when you were a child. Yeah,
1: it's so funny. I've been in therapy since second grade, although I didn't know it until college. So when the uh, counselor at college said, "You know, we have a therapist on campus. You should attend." I, th- I thought to was oh wow that's what they've been doing to me my whole life because ever since second grade I was taken out of class one hour a week uh-huh. and I was asked to draw and play with things and you could probably tell me better you know better than I know that those are meant to you know get you to exemplify some behavior that should be instructional for the therapist so. I imagine that's what that's what's been going on.
0: Well, I think as a child, sometimes children don't verbalize their emotions very well, so yeah. it starts. Unless you're play in theory. the
1: classroom, which is probably why they took me out of class because I was probably verbalizing too much. Okay. So. Oh, yeah. okay. No. So,
0: were you struggling with anxiety at the time? What was going on? That oh, I think I was struggling with
1: uh, many many things. Anxiety was probably the top of the list. Um, uh, I didn't really understand. Uh, and I still struggle with this. What you know is socially acceptable in class, out of class, mm-hmm. in the playground. Um, I came from an immigrant family that had a really hard time acculturating. They were in their thirties um, and forties when they came to the United States, so their mastery of Eng- English was almost none. We didn't speak English at home t- until um, I went to. F- uh, kindergarten and demanded that we change, you know, our language at home from Italian to English. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was very confused as a kid and, and wasn't sure, uh, you know, what what culture and uh, lifestyle I was exposed to that, at that time was the right one in public
0: versus at home. Right. I can imagine how that can really create just a sense of dissonance, right? Because you yeah. have a certain culture at home that is right. honored. And then you go to school and these Americanized no one gets it. kids. No one gets it. Yeah. 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 I'm from an immigrant family myself. And in fact, I'm an immigrant because I moved to the United States when I was nine. Okay. And good.
1: So, so my, you understand. You yeah. You understand really well. Yeah. Yeah. My yeah.
0: parents were in their thirties and mm. I don't think I could do what they did, mm. which is uproot your life right. and go to a completely R- different right, country right. where you don't speak the language. Right. And try to read. And just make a life for yourself. yes yeah, They're so. amazing,
1: our parents, yeah. huh? The, the, that generation, yeah. I, I doubt they're from the yeah. same generation, but a generation of immigrants uh, have strength that I don't think I could, I could find if I needed it. I, if uh, I needed to move to another country right now, say because of, I don't know, coronavirus or something, I don't <laughs> know that I could do it. I don't know that I could do it.
0: Yeah. I honestly, yeah. I feel like I would not be able to do it. and I'm, yeah. I'm very happy admitting that. I think I'm used to my creature comforts yeah. in America. Yeah. And while other countries are very nice to visit, it'd be so yeah. different to try yeah. to insert yourself yeah. in a world where you don't understand. So, Especially
1: because my backup country was Italy.
0: Yes. Yeah, I'm
1: an Italian. Uh, I have an Italian passport. I'm an Italian citizen. And, I, and that was always going to be my backup country. Mm-hmm. And there, alas, there will be no Italy for me <laughs> in the near future. Right. Yeah. When was the
0: last time you were in Italy? A couple of years
1: ago. But I yeah. go often. I've written cookbooks there, shot TV shows there. I'm very familiar with that, I love the culture. Uh, it's funny because it took me until my mid 30s to sort of get rid of my ethnic self-loathing and love the Italian side of me yes. and embrace it and make it part of my work.
0: Yes. And
1: uh, had you met me in my early 30s when I was opening Union Pacific and asked me if for a meatball recipe, I'd have laughed at you because I'd never made the meatballs and my mom was <laughs> you know, making these incredible dishes. Yes. Um, but around 36, seven, eight, I, I sort of was like, wow, this is really the, the most wonderful part of my background. Yes. And all these family members who live this culture uh, you know, this Italian culture in America, it's more Italian than American. Mm-hmm. They speak Italian at home, they make their own food, they grow yes. their own food. You know, it's just this most rich and wonderful lifestyle, right? And uh, in fact, some some of the their relatives live in what are called blue zones, but now or I'm sure you're familiar, uh, where people live to 100 and above very mm-hmm. often because they have this wonderful lifestyle filled with you know homemade food, organics, right. food, spirituality, purpose, community, and so, I should have been following that the whole time. Yes. Someone should have clued me in.
0: Italian culture, yeah. I feel like is the epitome of amazing food right? and so much other things. Yeah. Like you said, community togetherness. Yeah. I was just recently in Italy myself yeah. a few months ago. Yeah. My husband is yeah. Italian descent. Oh, and great. He's, yes, oh, he's wow, three amazing. quarters Italian, and a quarter wow. Greek. Wow, cool. So we went to Italy and we just love the culture. The food was so good the every are so day. people so nice, right? It's, it's, it's so nice.
1: easy to get along there. You know? Yes,
0: very, very different. Yeah. But like you said, America can be kind of scary for someone yeah. who's just yeah. trying to figure things out. And right. so, as a kid, you actually struggled with some of that anxiety and yeah. knowing what the. On the way here, I struggled said. with
1: it. Did I just always struggling with it. I think once you're when you're born a first generation uh, immigrant kid that grows up in a city like New York and and then a part of the city called Jamaica Queens, which is one of the most ethnically diverse places in the world. So I didn't go out of my house and encounter you know uh, American graffiti, America. Mm-hmm. I encountered another hundred ethnicities who each had their own culture that I, and I didn't know what I should do, you know? Um, So I tried to hang, uh, I tried to hold on to my Italian American upbringing and tried to sort of embrace the american the clearly american things like the football and the baseball uh, you know those so the yankees were a big part of my childhood growing up collecting baseball cards Mm -hmm. uh oddly enough bruce lee was a big part of my childhood growing (laughs) up because he was as american as a god at the time and he was on you know his movies were out all the time at that time um but it's always very confusing anyway my mom also had to struggle with the same thing. She came here in her mid thirties alone, Hmm. uh, no husband, no children sponsored a bunch of her family members to come over and then got married and brought a child over. And my dad couldn't come for several years due to immigration policies. And so she had a real hard time too. And, but she really made the best of it with her broken English and, uh, all the struggles that she had, she just made it look easy. So I feel a little, uh, Uh, When I complain about this, I feel a little (laughs) like I shouldn't be complaining because clearly other people will get through this just fine.
0: Well, I think everybody's so different in terms of how they respond to certain types Mm -hmm. of challenges, because some of the challenges that you've had and the success that you've been able to achieve, I think other people, their minds would be blown. How did you do that? How did you overcome this? And I think one of the things that you have worked hard at overcoming is the social anxiety Mm -hmm. piece and yet always being in the spotlight. Because you're constantly on TV shows, you're yeah. a public figure, and it's so interesting to think about your origin story. Where yeah. as a child, that stuff probably just freaked you out so much, and you couldn't even imagine yeah, as a, a career child like as this. a young
1: adult. Uh, I, I've told the story to uh, many people about my early days at my first really big restaurant, where I, I used an acting coach named Nancy Banks, who lives in Los Angeles, uh, to help me. Act through and and simulate encounters with my my customers because I was so uh, anxious and so uh, <laughs> unable to go out into a dining room and, and say, "Hey, how was your meal?" I'm Rocco. I'm the chef. I cooked this for you. What do you think? Um, and I and and it's funny because that was that was a time where I couldn't hide in the kitchen anymore. I was very happy hiding mm-hmm. in the kitchen and just making great food and getting feedback through waiters and mm-hmm. my partners. And then at some point in the '90s, the chef had to step out. Because marketing yourself became as important as cooking, Uh, marketing yourself became as important as making the great product. So it became a very um, difficult choice to make every night. How much time do I spend out in the dining room marketing myself versus how much time do I spend in the kitchen making the product perfect? And that's when a lot of my other problems started with you know becoming a known chef in the current industry that we you know we're all familiar with now, thanks to food television and all the press chefs get.
0: I'm actually a huge fan of food television. My cool. favorite time to watch it is when I'm hungry no, because then great. I just look Bad forward to, to watch eating. I know, then I just want to have a huge meal Something, after.
1: you know, covered in cheese. It'll be something oh, covered in cheese. Yeah. I
0: know, and it's so great because I yeah. actually t- learned so much because I'm a, most people are visual learners, but yeah, I especially sure. feel sure. like I am. So I like yeah. watching them prep yeah. the food and, oh, I never thought about doing yeah. that or adding this ingredient. But I understand the dissonance you must have had when you thought, oh, well, my passion is to cook the food and make the product perfect. And now this whole other element where basically you have to market yourself and your food. And that's why you had to hire an acting coach to literally run through... Role plays with role you, play, yeah. like pretend I'm a customer, mm-hmm. and then you come out, and what will you say? And mm-hmm. what if a customer complains? What yeah, will you say yeah. back? Mm-hmm. What if they give you a compliment? Yeah, yeah. So you had to really do it, almost in a very mechanical way, to get the the craft down, the, the mechanical technical the mechanical
1: part of, of market, the mechanics of marketing and being charming in a dining room, yeah. uh, and 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 also for television, we 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 role played. The Today Show, you know, someone played mm-hmm. Katie Couric and someone play, you know, we really did this qu- quite a lot because I was starting yes. to do a lot of TV appearances. And the ironic thing is I I was one of the early chefs to become criticized for doing too much of that. Wow. And the whole time I, I've been thinking, I don't want to do any of that. <laughs> so, but yeah. the industry is forcing me and and the competition in New York and, and in the country is forcing all of us to mm-hmm sort of abandon a life in pursuit of perfection of product for a life where you're marketing 24 seven, where you're, you know, hustling and pimping your product 24 seven. And it's, it's, you know, to this day a very difficult choice. Yeah. Uh, But I do, if you ask me what I'd love to do for most of my day, every day, what's spiritual for me, it's, it's still cooking. It's still chopping an onion heating up a pan, listen, listening to the sizzle, making something for a few hours, feeding it to someone, watching them, you know, uh, enjoy the, the yes. food that I made. And that's it. That's, it's a very simple life. If I, if, if I could have that, just that I'd choose it in, in a heartbeat.
0: Well, I think chefs are amazing because really you're feeding people, you're literally providing nourishment to them, but also there's such an emotional element because it's love. Yeah. And my grandmother who I adore and is like a second mother to me, she cooked for us all the time. And anytime I ate her dishes, you feel you the felt love. It. You felt the love ingredient. You really right? yeah, feel yeah, the yeah. love, yeah. and and I love that you also compare your career to a type of spirituality. So obviously, everybody lives their spiritual life in different mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. And there was actually a stint where you considered being a priest. I it totally was. understand that yes. because I'm Catholic. Oh, okay. I'm still a practicing Catholic. Oh, oh wow. Okay. So great. I know some priests. Some of some of these priests are my friends. One of them came actually to my book signing party. Amazing. You know, wow. and having alcohol because you know priests can drink, so yeah. it's fine. Yeah. So he was there drinking his bourbons. Priests can and will drink. <laughs> That's right. They love In drinks. In case you
1: didn't know, they yeah. love drinks. Yeah.
0: But you actually considered that as a career. Path not not only point. considered,
1: I pursued it. I went to a seminary, high school. Um, I, I will say that my mom put a little pressure on me, probably, probably <laughs> if you have a brother, I don't know if you have a sibling who's mm-hmm. who's eligible for priesthood, but there's a good chance your mom might have thought, oh, I'd like one of my children to become a priest or yes. a nun or something like that. Uh, but again, my mom's generation is the World War II generation. So it's for them... And and especially coming from Italy, you know, being oh. a priest was like a huge oh, honor. Was Maybe the, yeah. one
0: day you could be the Pope and uh, yeah, be at exactly. the Vatican, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> You'd be the
1: president, but then they, yeah. you know they'd say, No, but he's a priest, it's much better. Yes. Um and but I I also um looked at it through the metrics of what's good for me academically, and I was always sort of practical in that sense. And that was the best academic choice that I had. The kids who graduated from the school went to Harvard and Princeton, Yale, mm-hmm. and West Point. And a lot of them also went to this major seminary, they called it, the major seminary. Mm-hmm. 50% went to the major seminary and under priesthood. Um, but you just, I just knew I was going to learn a lot. It was going to be a great academic experience. Mm-hmm. Then my family moved, and I went, ended up in a public school where I, I literally spent barely two years and graduated because I did so much work in the first year wow. uh, that I didn't need to go to class for the last year. So I just... I um, I took a summer course, I, I accelerated through high school and I got into cooking school much faster than I expected, which turned out to be a wonderful thing for me. So how did yeah. you
0: decide that seminary wasn't going to be for you and the priesthood wasn't going to be good for you?
1: Yeah. Uh, I felt very uncomfortable from day one. <laughs> I I love the academic part of it. There were some teachers I really enjoyed. I made very close friendships with people that I, I still um, I'm still close with today. It's funny that you said uh, one of the, your priests visited your your, your book signing because yeah. that just happened to me recently. Oh, yeah, how yeah. funny! And yeah. uh, I just uh, ultimately wasn't comfortable in the environment. And mm. when I I saw what a, a traditional American high school looked like in a suburban neighborhood, mm-hmm. not not Queens. It looks so attractive to me. You know, yeah. There are girls, guys, cars, you know, movies, <laughs> popcorn, there's all, you know, all that stuff that you see in the movies and yes. that was my first exposure to it. So I was like, yeah, I'll take this. This this mm-hmm. looks great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, quickly I realized that this is no way near am- ambitious enough for me, so yeah. I need to get to the next step pretty quickly. Yeah. And how did yeah. you
0: discover your love of cooking?
1: So I always loved cooking. I uh my parents were lower middle class, you know, at, at best. My mom always worked many multiple jobs. We had boarders in our house, literally people living in our home. Mm-hmm. This was the um advent of the deinstitutionalization of uh, hospitals in New York and across America, and so there are all all of these um people who needed to live in, you know, I, I what would you call them? Not halfway houses, but in private homes. Mm-hmm where they'd get counseling and, but someone needed to take them into their home. So my mom was more than happy to do it um, because she loved taking care of people. And we probably needed the money. Um, And so we had two boarders in our house. And uh, the point of the story is that we didn't have a lot of money to spend on things like records and, posters and whatever, and I was really into a band called Kiss, and my mother hated it because she thought they were demonic, <laughs> for real. Like she thought they were wow. really occult and really oh, demonic man. and were really gonna lead me down, down a bad path. Right, right. So I wanted to buy an album called Love Gun. She wouldn't give me the money, and we had a fight. She, she um, announced that if I wanted to buy anything uh, to do with them, I'd have to go out and get a job and buy with my own money like it was a big dare. Mm. And I was 11, and I thought, what woman? I can go out and get my own job <laughs> right. and my, make my own money, and I don't have to have this
0: conversation. <laughs> right, right. Done. So the right. next day, I
1: literally walked into a, a pizzeria after you know asking many, many people, and they he said, "Yes, I'll give you a job, no problem." So wow. I started working in a, in a restaurant, and I fell in love with cooking and the hospitality business immediately. Hmm. Uh, the interaction between people was wonderful. The magic that happens in that space where you know you're. Just feeding something, whatever, even if it's a fountain yeah. soda. It was magical to me. Um, I got to eat all the Italian rice I wanted, and I made 50 cents an hour, which was a tremendous amount of money for me. That's so, an adult yeah. wage, right? Yeah.
0: I yeah. mean, at that time, that was a big deal. It, yeah, it was real... not far
1: from an adult, wage. Right? It was 1977, so it was Yeah, it was all right. and then he let me work, how generous of him. He let me work 60 hours a week, so I made oh, $30. I made $30 <laughs> a week. It was the best thing. Of ever. It was uh, an inc- intense lesson in an independence and uh, and I bought a stones album a really bad album and then I bought love gun by kiss and uh, I w- it was just like a great oh. life moment a life early lesson in independence and what adult adulthood feels like and wow. I worked in restaurants ever since and at 14 I was working in a German restaurant that had very serious food, very serious menu. Mm. The first day there, they were making head cheese, which is um, pig's heads boiled until they fall apart and pulled apart and then compressed into a form. It was the first thing I saw walking into that restaurant. Wow. And uh, at that point, I started to get very serious about being a chef. There were very serious chefs there, and so yeah, you yeah. had
0: mentors there. Yeah, and at, so at the age of fourteen, you really an idea formed yeah, in your you're head. You're
1: malleable yeah. and enough to where people can be very impressive, and yeah. So there was a guy there who went to the Culinary Institute of America, and he was always talking about how great it was. And I decided I was that's where I was going to go, and I did two years later.
0: Wow. So what was your first signature dish that you remember?
1: First signature dish I created and I'm most proud of is uh, something I created uh, for two restaurants before Union Pacific, a place called Dava. It was sea urchin with tomato water and mm-hmm. mustard oil. And then I added raw base scallops to it a few years later. And to this day, people know me for that dish. So it's not the meatballs. My mom was famous <laughs> for the meatballs. Hers are amazing. Mine were like, okay. Uh, but it's that dish. And I wrote a book called Flavor. Uh, Explaining how that dish uh, pretty much summed up my philosophy on food and flavor, how four major tastes, sour, salt, sweet, bitter, make up all all the dishes that we eat, and every dish is some combination of those. Uh, so that that's my signature dish. Yeah, I'll show that, you a picture later. I would love Beautiful to see dish,
0: it. So. I would love to see it. And that cookbook won the James Beard. It award. did, yeah. So but, but, that was yeah, your yeah, first yeah. cookbook yes, too. Yes. So what year was that? Two uh, thousand uh,
1: two, I think. Two thousand two.
0: Yes. So yeah. and you've published fourteen books. Yeah, you know they'll let then. anyone
1: write a book these days.
0: Okay. I don't know. Well, I don't know about that. That's a very funny self-deprecating humor yeah. you have there. Um, was that practice? Was that role no, playing? <laughs> I'm no, kidding. That wasn't. Um, but it's really great that you have been able to be so prolific. And I think sometimes people think, how how can somebody have so much creativity, right? Where do all your ideas come from? Because if you have 14 cookbooks, mm-hmm. you probably have thousands of recipes just floating around in your head at all times. So
1: I have lots of ideas floating around. Ingredients uh, provide me with, uh, with ideas. When I look at food, I get ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess the opposite of anxiety and depression is uh, mania, So I, there's probably some of that going on, you know, <laughs> uh, but I've, I've, there's always a natural connection between myself and food. Um, and then when I learned how to cook healthy food in you know the mid two thousands, I really wanted to write a, a book about it. And then I wanted to write a lot of books about it because I, I feel like I discovered, uh, something sort of magical almost. And the doctors was kind enough to have me on for that first book. Uh, and it's called now eat this. And, uh, uh-huh. Then my cooking had a purpose other than just to entertain and fulfill mm-hmm. some sort of emotional need at the moment, right. and uh, it became very important for me to to learn, continue to learn about a healthy cooking, and share share everything I learned.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, there's some pros and cons to anxiety because obviously anxiety can be very troublesome, distressing, can keep you from doing certain things, but mm-hmm. also anxiety can drive. Progress to a degree, and Mm -hmm. I know that you're a self-described perfectionist. Mm -hmm. So, what does success mean to you? Because I think when people look at you and they look at all your Mm -hmm. accolades and all of your achievements, I mean, you've been on numerous TV shows, Mm. the fourteen cookbooks, so affiliated, and and so so many people know who you are and your work. What is success? What's the end goal for you? What's
1: success right now? How do I define it right now? Yeah, it's right now. I would define it very differently than I than I would have described it. Twenty years ago. Um, right now, it's peace. Mm. It's it's having peace, which means not a lot of conflict in life. Mm-hmm. Um, being surrounded by kindness and generosity. Um, the ability to to work or not. Uh, not that I'll ever not work because that's just how I'm wired. You know, I'm always mm-hmm. working on something. Um, but it's nice to be able to. I think success would mean that you could choose what you'd want to work on there's lots of you know mitigating factors and outside influences so uh to be free of those influences and mitigating factors would be would be a, a definition of success for me um uh eliminating fear from my life you know mm. not not being so fearful of what's going to happen in the next moment tomorrow mm-hmm. in 6 months uh our, you know, current struggles with all the thing things that are going on in the world are not helping me yeah. <laughs> eliminate fear from my life. But you know, just uh, being at peace with whatever happens, I think that's the kind of thing you know a wonderful ninety five year old grandmother achieves on you know their deathbed. Usually, yes. I'm not sure I'm ever going to get there, but I'm, that's what I'm working towards.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's the goal. No. Do you feel like you're a little bit of a catastrophizer where you think into the future and you're already seeing so many steps ahead to the point where if the worst happens, what's my plan?
1: So I, I, I think about what's going to happen a lot, mm-hmm. and often I imagine catastrophes. <laughs> uh, I don't dwell on it as much as I'm making myself sound like I do right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have the ability to just say, oh, that's nonsense. Don't worry about it. Just keep moving through today and enjoy the moment sometimes, not Mm -hmm. not all the time. So
0: practicing mindfulness, (laughs) which, of course, is such a buzzword, but it's important. Very important. important. I mean, impulse
1: control is one of the first things I learned in therapy. And mindfulness comes from impulse control. And being able to just stop the cycle Mm -hmm. and think and uh, be conscious is so important, right? And mindfulness comes from that practice.
0: I hate meditation mm. by the way, right? As a psycho mm. like, as a psychotherapist as a mm-hmm. psychologist, I actually despise mm-hmm. traditional meditation. Mm. But I like other types of mindfulness activities mm. like mm. a walking meditation mm. or you know, there's a lot of different ways to have mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Even journaling is mindfulness. So once I got mm. through that Brain block. It helped mm-hmm. me with that a bit more, but I, I I'm not that person who can just kind of sit there. Yeah, and,
1: I've tried it. I tried it many times. Yeah. I, I just uh, yeah. too many thoughts racing around in yeah. there for me to slow down. I even went to a place uh, to learn. Mm-hmm. Yoga, uh, yoga and meditation. It's yes. called yoga for the yogaically challenged, and it's at this incredible place in, in Big Sur, and you eat only vegetarian food. And uh, it's Big designed Sur's for so that. Beautiful. And I was able to do it there, but once I got out, I wasn't. I wasn't. But
0: right, right.
1: But yeah, when I think you
0: were being guided through it, though, it was great
1: it. when I was being guided through. It. Yeah, there yeah. was guided meditation, and it worked really well. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I love that. And you mentioned that in the past, your success or definition of it looked different. So what was it in your twenties and maybe early thirties? What was oh, just that definition? just
1: um, you know the the uh, nonstop pursuit of something financial, something with a certificate, yeah. something with uh, you know a newspaper article that came with it. It all it all was very um, uh, outside, external. Not not a lot coming from inside, mm-hmm. and while that's wonderful, and I do appreciate. Uh, all those accomplishments and the recognition they come with um, they don't fill the void, you know, they don't fill the they don't fill the space that we're all trying to fill every day. So um, and I'm very grateful for those opportunities. And and to this day, you know, the fact that at the standard, we made it into the Michelin guide was so important to me and I'm thrilled that we did it, but it's, it's, It's an external thing. It's not, it's not long lasting, you know? Right. Um, so back then it was a lot of, you know, reinforcement from people on the outside and, and that's all I was sort of after. I mean, I did have a a pure interest in cooking and and that Mm -hmm. turned into creating things for other people to enjoy that they actually enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And I knew that was true for, for a fact. And, uh, was very lucky to be in New York at that time. Cooking at that, time. it was a very special time in New York. Um, the New York customer base allowed us to be very free as artists. Now in New York, you'll see that a lot of the menus are very similar, and mm-hmm. uh, everyone's you know sort of services are contracting, not expanding. Everyone's very concerned about you know financial issues in the restaurant business. So uh, it's not our. It's not, this is not our heyday. Back in the nineties, sort of was the heyday for all of us um yeah
0: and i think yeah so
1: so moving from external you know recognition to a place where you can derive um inner peace is sort of the the journey i've been on
0: yeah and, and i think a lot of people are going to resonate with that because as a society we're sort of taught to seek that type of what we call hedonic happiness, right? Where there's those bursts of joy when you achieve something external or the minute you first land at a awesome vacation mm-hmm. spot. You have that amazing flood of positive emotions, mm-hmm. but eventually that does go away. Yeah, we're off, yeah. And then as you work further on self-development, and I think certainly as we get older, you start to realize that there's a different kind of happiness where it's really more based on your values and... Mm the time you spend with people Mm -hmm. who you care about. And I think it really clicked for me when I lost my grandmother and realizing that no one on their deathbed is talking about the diplomas and the awards, right? Right. They're just happy to be there with their family, holding hands with them. And I know that you suffered a major loss yourself. In fact, it was Mm. your mother Mm. who I know is a hero for you yeah, and you want to embody a lot of her values like kindness. Yeah. 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 So my mother was,
1: was extraordinary in a lot of ways. Anyone who met her could, could attest to the fact that she made them feel special and loved Mm -hmm. and like they had value in this world. I mean, anyone, Mm -hmm. any person, Mm -hmm. uh, and she had, you know, a gift for, uh, being extraordinarily generous with her humanity and, um, I don't have that gift. I'm, I, I look to her as an example <laughs> of, of a person right. that I'd like to be more like, and I'm working towards being like her a little bit more uh, every day. But, um, yeah, she was very special. She was very generous, very good mother. Mm-hmm. You know, the mechanics of being a mom, just being sure we were fed and clothed and yeah. uh, taken care of. And then the spiritual side was very important to her. Um, she was able to be unselfish many many times where it would have been very easy for her to be selfish um when she was sick she was unselfish when she was dying she was unselfish Mm. she she made it very easy for us to understand you know and accept the fact that she was going to die uh
0: i don't know how somebody could do that you know in my mind willing
1: to have those hard discussions you know and in the middle of in the middle of random conversations she'd say you know When I die, don't be unhappy. I lived a great life. I, I have you. You have me. I want you to celebrate. Please play music at my funeral. I really, I mean it when I say I want you to be happy. You know. And she left all these crazy instructions, and I carried them out at her funeral, and I got criticized for it. I was like, this is literally what she asked for. Um, So she had the presence of mind to be able to, you know, conquer the the stuff that this world the challenges that this world brings you and I think it was her spirituality that helped it must her. be yeah.
0: but but still I consider myself a spiritual person I cannot imagine myself having so much peace while you're struggling with the fact yeah. right because she was yeah. the one who she right, knew she was, the person. She was going yeah. to be yeah. dying, and, yeah. and actually, and I guess this happened in 2005, right? Was when she first became sick so, after yeah, a heart she, attack. She had
1: the, yeah, yeah, yeah. About, and then about you, then, yeah.
0: and then you became her caregiver. I became which, her
1: primary caretaker. Yeah,
0: which is such a also. It's just a little bit of work. Switch. It's no big deal. You can do that in <laughs> spare time. <laughs> no. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I if mean, you're a
1: good is. caretaker, it's just, uh, it becomes everything. Right? It becomes yeah. your primary job. Uh, and I was very happy to do it, and I wouldn't change a thing if I had to do it again. And I'm thankful because I don't know that I would have had those 11 years with her uh, as as close and as meaningful and as rich an experiences as it was if mm-hmm. she didn't she and I didn't need each other or she didn't need me to be be no. there for her like that um, so I'm sort of grateful because most people don't see much of their parents as they you know leave this world right
0: Right. Yeah. And you were extremely busy professionally, and yet you yeah. were her primary caregiver. Yes. So how did yes. you balance those responsibilities? Because each one is definitely its full time job and a half.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so the first thing I did is uh, I moved her next to me. We moved. We lived next, to me, literally next door to each other in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and I moved her to a facility that had some supervision mm-hmm. at, at first, and then when it was clear she needed twenty four hour care. Uh, which she refused for many years. Uh, I finally won that fight after her stroke, and uh, I got her really good 24-hour care. But I obviously had to supervise and maintain all those relationships. And I had to learn a lot about medicine and how mm-hmm. hospitals work and how doctors work and how to advocate for, For uh, I hired consultants who were advocates, <laughs> nurse advocates, yes. physician assistant advocates. And if anybody's listening and they're going through the same thing, hire those people. It's worth every penny. Just to know that you can advocate for yourself, just to watch someone do it for you and then learn. <laughs> that yes. you can do that for yourself you know, yes. is an amazing epiphany. It's such right. an illuminating moment when someone goes up to whoever comes in the room and says, hey, by the way, boom, 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 boom. Yes. I wanna see the results now. Go back, get those results, come back, you report to me. We never have that experience so in the hospital. Usually oh, no they tell you us what to do. Deferential right? to the doctors, yeah, 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 yeah. right? Like, oh yes, uh, <laughs> you know. uh, Bowing and bowing and That's bowing. Right. And meanwhile, the, the care is not often not coordinated. And yeah. medicines are contraindicated. I mean, there's so many things that you need to be cautious about. So someone has to have their brain on that full time. And mm. that was me. And uh, I feel like someone should write a book about how to... I'm sure there are plenty in existence, but... That curve, that learning curve from going to, mm-hmm. uh, from just a, a child to a caregiver is, is pretty steep. And oh. there should be at least a 10 page manual. Uh, <laughs> you know, m- yeah. Maybe an 100 page yeah, manual yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. it is
0: such a flip in responsibility, roles, and identity. Yeah. This is the person who gave you life, who took right. care of you. Right, right, They're right. your safe haven. And all of a sudden right. it flips and yeah. you're their safe haven, but yet. I'm hearing that at the same time your mom still continued to be in her own way because she kept saying, Don't worry about me. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I want to die. Don't worry. I'm good. I know where I'm going. I, yeah, I'm gonna be fine. Let me die. Let me Uh, that that just blows my mind. I really can't comprehend as she is beyond this world
0: for sure. But I, I think that sometimes people, in an effort to try to empathize with you and maybe provide you with some comfort when your loved one finally passes away, they say things to you like, Well, at least you had a quality time with her or at least Mm. you had time and i think sometimes they don't realize that when there is a chronic illness that gets dragged out you're basically then just grieving the entire time yeah yeah and getting and and and
1: understanding that you know you're this is the beginning of the end right right the first heart attack i thought oh this is okay we're gonna fix this she she survived and doctors were like yeah she she could live a long life after this and Mm -hmm. then every every time something else happened it was like well she yeah. might live another five years. She might live another six years, another yeah. three years. So that that slow uh, process where you realize this is absolutely for sure the end mm-hmm. is, a, is a tough time. Right. So yeah. when we got to the end, it wasn't as tough as I expected it because she'd been preparing us. I'd, I'd been preparing myself mm-hmm. and all of our doctors and all the people around us have basically been telling me for you know a year or two at that point that at some point there's going to be so many things going on we're not going to be able to get her out of it. And she had great care and
0: uh, yeah.
1: those doctors and nurses and, and uh, HHAs, that uh, home health uh, mm. assistants, were like truly angels and uh. did so much for her and treated her like family. Mm. Um, and then while you're doing that, of course, you can't take care of yourself, right? Because right. you're trying to... Earn a living, take care of your mom, yep. do all you that come stuff. Last. Yeah, so I had a few rough patches with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I got through most of them. I'm mean, sort of coming out of another rough patch right now because mm-hmm. uh, I had back surgery, and you know the self care just falls to the bottom of the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, uh, and I wrote a book about health and wellness that just came out, and so it's kind of odd because I'm, I'm not in my best shape ever, mm-hmm. and I've been on this show in my best shape ever. Mm-hmm. Well, the doctors, when I say this show, I mean the yeah. doctors, right? I think of it like my family because they've yeah. been with me this whole journey. Um, and now I'm getting people who are saying, you're not, you look terrible, like what's, how can yeah. you sell a book in health and well? I'm like, well, we're not perfect. You know, right. we're, we, so we, have, judgy. we have rough times too. Yeah. And, and I'm usually, I come right up front and say, listen, this is not me at my best, but this book is a good book and these recipes still work and keto will help you lose weight. Yeah. Uh, so there's all <laughs> that going on right oh, now. It's yeah, yeah, so yeah, annoying yeah.
0: that you have to defend that. Yeah. And as you mentioned earlier, because you have to market your product. That's why everyone's looking and they're saying, well, but I have this other picture of you from X year and you look this way. And and it's so tough because I think you bring up this huge element of self-care that people still think that it's selfish, that there's a lot of stigma against it. And especially when you're caring for somebody, a loved one. I feel like sometimes it feels like a little bit too indulgent almost to be taking care of yourself in that moment, or at least that's the perception. Well, these other things have to come first. My right, businesses, right, my career, right, my mom, right. other family members who are grieving mm. my mom, you know, and then where does that leave room for you? Mm-hmm. So, so what were some of the rough patches that you went through during that time? Uh,
1: so, so leaving, um, Rocco's and union Pacific when my mom first became, um, My dependent, I guess you would call it, or or Mm -hmm. the person I had to care for was a rough patch. Um, My self-care was zero. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then I got into, through a couple of accidents and, I don't know, you know, magic and the universe speaking to me, I I was asked to be on The Biggest Loser. I was asked to do a triathlon for charity. Mm -hmm. Uh, My doctor told me my, my numbers weren't great and I'd been complaining to him that my numbers weren't great my whole life Mm -hmm. and he'd always told me that you're a hypochondriac you need to get you know you need to stop worrying your numbers are great you're a young man you're healthy and I remember him saying hey guess what you're finally not your numbers are finally not great so congratulations you have something to worry about (laughs) and he said um here's I need you to get on these medicines you know uh because I I don't like how the numbers look and I want you know 20 years from now for you to be okay. Uh, and I remember we, t- we went through all the medicines and, this, and there were three medicines. And uh, those were that was a lot for me, three, right. going from zero to three. Right, And uh, we talked about side effects. Side effects are all terrible, of course. And then he said, but you could also diet and exercise. And I said, oh, you mean if I do that, um, I don't have to take the medicines or I'll still have to take the medicine? He was like, if you do that, you probably won't have to take any of the medicines. Mm. He said, I tell everyone that, but no one ever does it. I was like, okay, I'll be the first. Let me let me be the first. Yeah. And so those that confluence of events, and the triathlon especially, got me on a path where I was really taking good care of myself and learning what taking good care of yourself means. Learning mm-hmm. what foods will get you there, what mm-hmm. foods will get you to a, a good weight, what foods will uh, sustain tremendous endurance, um, mm-hmm. athleticism like a triathlon. And it was a several-year period, but you know, I got to the best shape of my life, and I was in my forties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sustained that for a long time. I did. I did um, the United States Championships for triathlons in, in Florida, and uh, I have three bikes on my wall to attest for <laughs> it. Uh, But there were, you know, there were moments where uh, it just fell apart because I I lost my mom, my dad, a pet, a few other things Mm -hmm. happened all in the same sort of three to five year period, and then my back surgery. And uh, I don't want anyone feel sorry for me. Obviously, I know that everyone goes through this stuff.
0: but it was just an rapid succession. But it's just a succession. lot. You know, it's a lot of stuff yeah. happening. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff happening. Yeah, well, and, and then yeah. you lost your yeah. mobility for a bit because you actually yeah. needed spine surgery. So were yeah. you born with scoliosis? Yes, yes. How did you keep it at bay all of these years? I remember those exams. Yeah, like, so, bend and yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so my, in my time, there was really nothing they could do. Now they can fix it before puberty if you have mm-hmm. it. Uh, and if you, if it sh- if it shows up during pu- puberty, which is where most of, most of the time it does, um, they can still fix it. I mean, if you go to a great chiropractor, they can absolutely straighten it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're a believer in ch- chiropractic care or not, but I am a huge believer in you know, uh, functional medicine. And mm-hmm. my chiropractor is the one who asked me to do the triathlon, by the way, ah. for, for his charity. And he didn't tell me it was a triathlon uh, until <laughs> it was up. time to show up, basically. <laughs> um, and so he kept me, he kept me working and going without surgery for many, many years because he was really good at what he did. Um, and the whole time he said, you know, listen, I'm, I'm going to keep you away from surgery as long as possible. Eventually you're going to need it. I know that, but Mm. for the next 10, let's see if we can go 10, 15 years. We went 20 years, you know, without surgery. And then finally it just, you know, nerves get compressed and all of a sudden your right leg doesn't move anymore and Mm -hmm. you're in a wheelchair trying to get around and you need surgery. And, uh, luckily in New York, we have some of the best doctors, in the country, and so I went to a place called HSS, and they have a great doctor, and uh, he took care of it. But it was, you know, it was it was months of being in a wheelchair, months of complete oh. immobility, and then recovery from surgery, which is which takes time. I remember trying to get on my bike, which is something I did multiple times a week. Hmm. An average ride was forty miles, sixty miles. Wow! And I did that three, four times a week with such joy in my heart. You know, I you really loved, loved, it. loved it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember getting on my bike. Uh, I think it was three three months after surgery, which was the minimum time you had to wait, and I waited for the day after the minimum (laughs) time, and I couldn't go a mile, and I was just so crushed, you know. Uh, And then I tried to do my Soul Cycle, which was something I did a lot, and (laughs) just couldn't get through it, and I I think I got really discouraged. But um, it's time, you know, it's probably time for me to get back on and see what I can see what I can get done.
0: Yeah. I mean, you had major surgery. You had a discectomy. So those things, I mean, some people never feel like they can bounce back. The oh, is same that right? Way. Thank you. I mean, Thanks so it's not. No, I mean, you'll be fine. But I just think that people no. feel that yeah, yeah. way after. No, I know you're it's right. It's just you a was, perception too, because it takes a longer period of time to train back. Yeah, everything is so much slower.
1: Yeah. Oh, so I have around. to get my bike refit, which means there's a new <laughs> yeah. normal. I can't. I can't sit in my bike the way I used to. I'm going to have to get like yes. the old band fitting now, right? Because oh, everything no. is upright, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Way yeah. to
0: deal with all of our existential crises, right? right? Um, and I think. I mean, again. And not everybody is a saint like your mom. I think almost every one of us has existential crises of uh, death, changing bodies, um, things not working the way that Mm -hmm. they used to. And you had to confront all of those things at the same time. So you did have this, as you just described, this rapid succession of just loss Mm -hmm. after loss Mm -hmm. after identity change. And there was just so many things happening at once. And it's not hard to imagine why the self-care just completely went out the window. Yeah. So as you think about that now, and as you're getting back on that journey, mm-hmm. what led you to say, no, I, I've got to start doing that again, start taking care of myself and reorient yourself towards that lifestyle?
1: Uh, utter disgust with myself, uh, clothes not fitting anymore, uh, uh, people reacting not so kindly, with less generosity than they used to uh and and the sense that I really understand how to do it right so i I've mm-hmm. written about it, I've done it myself
0: yes.
1: um I understand the mechanics of it, I understand the philosophy, I understand the science uh and i guess i've i've just it's taken me a couple of years to understand uh well i I worked on the line for two years straight at the standard and was able to do that funny enough, that skill never. Is compromised, so I can mm-hmm. do that anytime, anywhere for 15 hours, no problem. And I did that every night on the line at the standard. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm not sure it must be muscle muscle memory or something, but yeah, n- no matter what my physical condition is, I can I can cook on the line for 14 hours anyway. Wow. Um, some of the reaction is, you know, I I understand that some of the reaction from the public comes from just a silly place, but mm-hmm. some it's legit because I have been. For over 10 years trying to be a model of what um living a healthy lifestyle means and and writing books about it and being an advocate for it and i understand their disappointment i'm disappointed too mm-hmm. um so that's figuring you know pretty prominently mm-hmm. uh and then at my age this starts to become very serious right if, it, if i allow this to get you out of hand then then I'm looking at the same problems my mom had right. and I definitely don't want to repeat that cycle because that's not that's not a fun one you know
0: right hmm. yeah and I think that it, it is hard because sometimes people think okay you're a health and wellness role model and somehow you're supposed to have it all figured out mm-hmm. i think it's so much more motivating and inspiring when you can actually see their entire journey mm. all the pitfalls all the times when they struggle because if you never struggled uh, how can you teach people and actually relate to them on that level, right? Because if you don't know what they're going through, and you just say, "Well, do this," because this is what happens, I don't know if you have any credibility in some ways. Because yeah. then you haven't even dealt yeah. with the challenges. So how can you know mm-hmm. what it's like to be on the other side? And and so while people are judgmental, I think it says a lot more about themselves than it does about you. But mm-hmm. I know that at the moment, it doesn't feel that way. You know, and there
1: and there have been people who've said, uh, you know, I I don't love that you're going through this, but I really think you understand me now. You know, I, yeah. I think that you understand what the average person goes through. Because I'm not average in the sense that I have a food delivery system where I get food delivered to my house. Mm-hmm. Um, it's my it's my business, so um, it's not that unusual that you would have your own f- food sent to you, but yeah. I, I eat the best food you can make every yes. day, you know? Yes, um, uh, except when I'm judging one of the TV shows that you, you've you probably seen on food network, <laughs> then it goes so sideways <laughs> completely. Uh, yeah, but so I, I think it's good for me to understand what, what people who are really struggling are struggling with. Yeah. And I think it's good for you. are Right. It's good for them to see me struggle and hopefully overcome, you know, at some point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what are some of the things that you're doing now to get back into So today? just,
1: you know, the consciousness, just the, 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 what I tell other people to to do, which is not crave and consume, but crave and be conscious. So I crave and make a decision. Yeah. Think, you know, impulse control. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the ramifications of this food choice you're about to make or mm-hmm. beverage choice you're about to make? So just, in, you know, giving myself that, that speech and yeah. and making that a more important part of my life every day, and understanding that even if I'm going to. Judge a cooking show where I'm going to have to eat, you know, I don't know what for three days. Yeah, there are still ways to mitigate the, you know, the uh, losses of gains that will happen because of that. Right. Um, and then uh, the physical activity. I'm just making um, uh, a real making it really important for me to figure out what physical activity will be comfortable for me in this mm-hmm. post, you know, surgery world. Yeah. Uh and it's gonna take some time. I'll just have to figure it How out. How is your
0: pain now? Is it okay? Are you able to do well, most things?
1: It it was um acute sciatica, So the pain was, you know, ten out of ten all the time. Oh. Now it's uh you know, in the two, three oh, range. Good. It'll always be there. I mean, yeah. yeah. And and my doctor thinks I'm gonna need surgery again in about ten years. Mm-hmm. You know, the crazy one with all the pins and rods and oh, all that no. stuff. Yeah, yeah. So
0: but you got 10 years. Yeah, I've got 10 yeah, years. You got yeah. 10 years. Yeah. Don't think about that If I that give myself now. those 10 years, right? right? If I make sure
1: cuz being healthy and and having a low body weight and all that's very important mm-hmm. in terms of how your spine, you know, heals yeah. and
0: I will be the first to admit that I struggle deeply with existential crises. And actually, it didn't really happen until my grandmother died. Because, again, Mm. she was such an important figure for me. She was the reason why our entire family was Catholic. She was the first one who was converted when she was in Taiwan. Um, I was raised by her because my parents were both so busy and working for the first few years of my life. I didn't really see them much because they would come home after I fell asleep. It's great.
1: You were lucky. Grandmas are the best. Oh, they're the best. She walked me to kindergarten.
0: She cooked all my food. So cool. Yeah, but, you know, after she passed away, I became... Deathly afraid of death, actually. Yeah. I never thought about it before. I had yeah. this very, you know, cavalier yeah. thought about it. Like, well, yeah. you know, we all die sometimes. Yeah. Big deal. Sure. You know? No big deal. And yeah. then somebody actually close to you dies right. and you You're all like, of a sudden just come into focus with right. this idea of our life is mortal. Yeah. And I have had some sports injuries throughout the last few years. And again, after every sports injury, each recovery period is longer. Yeah. I have to be so much kinder to my body. Mm. I can't eat the way that I used to and look the same. So Mm. it's like my runs get longer and longer Mm. so that I can still eat because I'm a foodie. Mm. So I think all of us struggle with it Mm -hmm. to some degree. You you have to make those changes. and, And having a well life is hard. And when you have a tough day, sometimes you just think, I'm not going to exercise today, yeah. and then one day turns into ten, right? So yeah, it's exactly. very easy yeah. for that to happen, and Just slip
1: into that. Cycle. Yeah,
0: yeah. But there is so much positivity that you still espouse all the time, and like you said, you wrote this book, and despite the haters, it's still a good book with great tips because you've lived that life too. Yes, you've you done know, that, it's, and it's, it's worth
1: very solid science. And yeah, you know, it's nice because um, every time I write a cookbook, I'm trying to push. I'm trying to push forward a little bit. Uh, so when I write these books. Um, and I come on the doctors, I, I you know, and I'm <laughs> explaining to them my theories and trying to get them to eat black bean brownies and met with some resistance. Uh, you know, it's a struggle. So I'm, I'm yeah. basically trying to pitch this new idea in weight loss, like my pound a day diet book, which is yeah. essentially a book on keto, right? It was a keto yes. book. It was a low carb book. And, uh. It happened to have you know black bean brownies in it, and and Dr stork didn 't like them so oh, you bummer. know but but with the keto book, it seems like it 's the right idea at the right time. Everybody seems to know what keto is, everybody mm-hmm. knows it's a low carb high fat you know uh, diet, and uh half the people I talk to are on it and getting success you know and achieving yeah. success with it so it's nice to have that finally uh, it 's funny because three years ago when we first conceived of this book, the comfort food keto book um we weren't sure if we should use the term keto because even three years ago, mm-hmm. we felt like it was a little bit experimental and might right. be scary. Yes, but it turns out three years later, it, it's really just the perfect timing for it. And yeah. the people who are doing keto and there's a lot of them are bored uh, of the recipes because most keto recipes problem. are very yeah. basic, right? It's just like eat a steak, yeah. put some cheese on it. Yeah, you it know? sounds great for eat a while. Bacon, you know? Right. Yeah. but
0: after eating bacon yeah. straight for three weeks, you yeah, might want something it, exactly, else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: I took, I took the dishes that did well in my previous books and ones that got great reactions to, including the meatballs, of course, and mm-hmm. just turned them into keto recipes. mac and cheese. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, mac and cheese. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's mac and so cheese. Great. There's no mac in the mac and cheese, but it's still delicious. It tastes uh, like mac yeah, and cheese. That's does, all I care yeah, about. Exactly.
0: And congratulations because your book is number one today, which is so amazing. It. I really
1: can't believe it. Yeah. Well, yeah.
0: It, it shows that your hard work pays off, and, Thank and you. people just Thank love you. your so nice love your it. ideas, and again, just being creative and and really using it as a way, not only a, a path the lifestyle towards wellness, but it's so filled with love and it's filled with passion. And I think that's why you appeal to so many people because people look at you and they think this guy loves what he does, Mm. right? He loves what he does. He's, he's found His passion, and Mm -hmm. not everybody can do that in their Mm -hmm. lifetime. And I think in our parents' generation, it wasn't even really about that.
1: No, they 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 come
0: home, they put food on the table. It's great. It's a great life.
1: They inherited their careers usually, right? My dad was a cabinet maker because his dad was. Right. My mom's a seamstress because her mom was. Right. Right.
0: So to really break the mold and to do your own thing is so amazing and. My podcast is all about teaching people to supercharge their life and I think you really embody that because you have supercharged all of these Thanks. aspects of your Thanks. life. But also the self-care went to the self-care went to the bottom of things for a bit. Mm-hmm. So I think we should talk about that. Mm-hmm. You know, I really like to give my listeners a practical tip that they can mm-hmm. take and really improve their life that day and I think so many people who are sure. listening They get it. They're like, wow, self-care after loss, any kind of loss, whether it's your physical mobility, your parents, Mm -hmm. you know, what you thought your career looked like in one aspect, Mm -hmm. the restaurant aspect, and then doing something else, you Mm -hmm. know, kind of reinventing your career. But all of those things are losses. And it's so hard to care for yourself after each of those losses. And you had Mm -hmm. so many at one time. So what are some tips that you can give my listeners who Struggle with that, and again, still think yeah, so self care is selfish, and all of those. One different thing ideas. keeps coming to
1: mind because I'm I'm speaking to you, a person who is a neuropsychiatrist, is that you should work with a therapist <laughs> yeah. at any age, at any point in your life, if you can find a uh, a kind therapist who can give you direction mm-hmm. generously, uh, and not just sit there and listen it's going to be a game changer. It was a game changer for me. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that if I did not, uh, if I wasn't the kid that got, t- you know, taken out of class since, since second grade and I didn't find the mm-hmm. wonderful therapist I've worked with my whole life, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I, I'd be here talking to you. I think I might have ended up like a lot of the kids in my neighborhood, which, you know, uh, Include death from overdose, death oh. death by police, death right. in other forms, uh, jail. Um, I grew up in a really rough part of Queens, and those kids didn't have a lot to look forward to. And a lot mm-hmm. of my really good friends ended up in very bad places. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that that wouldn't have happened to me if I didn't have the help. For some reason, people wanted to take me out of class and help me.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, if, you, if you're a person who um, is struggling and there's someone who wants to talk to you or... F- if there's someone in your church or, or even a professional therapist that you happen to know, or if you don't mm-hmm. know, look up your, in your book of insurance. There's probably someone you can go to, yeah. and they are game changers. These, these are professionals with no agenda who mm-hmm. will, will listen to you talk about things that no one else will listen to. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of people out there who say, like to say, I don't need, I'm not yes. crazy. I yes. don't need therapy. Yes. I'm not a crazy person. It's, it's so not about that. And right. it's it come a long way too, even in my lifetime. Yes. From sort of like classic analysis, Freudian ana- analysis that's where right. you just sat and talked all the time and no one ever <laughs> said, you know, you're on the right track or you're not. No, they just uh, lay there. It's very different now. So that's <laughs> one massive tip that I'd like to share uh, that has been a game changer for me. Um, another thing is the sweet art of self-discipline, right? So yeah. there are times where you just have to crank that up. And yeah. and understand uh, if you're depriving yourself of something that gives you pleasure, but doesn't give you health, doesn't give you peace, mm-hmm. you have to do the math on those decisions and and decide which is more important. And for yeah. me right now, it's very clear I need to make choices like give me health and peace and not just pleasure. Yes. Yes. Um, and that's just uh, uh, it's, it's a discipline, right? It's something you have yeah. to practice at.
0: I love both of those tips because, again, values based decision making, your second tip is so important. Really having a compass so that your decisions don't just come from like you said that hedonic happiness that impulse well this is going to feel really good in the moment Mm -hmm. it's more what's going to bring me that inner Mm -hmm. peace Mm -hmm. and how will i wake up tomorrow morning Mm -hmm. and just feel really good about the decision that i made right and and it's really about what you want in your soul but i but i love your first tip too and you know for the record i would be honored to be called a therapist i think therapists of all different types of training can all be really wonderful Mm -hmm. my therapist that i had for a couple of years after my grandmother passed away that was when i really felt like i need to go to therapy mm-hmm. i'm dealing with this grief and it's mm-hmm. really hard she was an mft and mm-hmm. she was one of the most brilliant therapists mm-hmm. that i had and she had such a way about her that was so kind and mm-hmm. and so non-judgmental mm-hmm. because i had all of these judgments in my head all sure. this shame and guilt about why i was feeling this sure. way like i didn't appreciate my life but i just had a hard time after my grandmother passed away and it was hard for me and she never judged me for some of the meanest thoughts that i said to myself in my head you know uh criticizing myself for still struggling with it a few months later that's because
1: they're professionals right a lot of people say well i have my mom i have my brother i have my husband i have my best friend but there's there it's going to be impossible for those people to be uh, um absolutely objective they have an agenda yeah and they may not even recognize what their agenda is while they're giving you advice so you need someone who who's agenda free who's objective and professionally trained
0: yes and i think sometimes people shy away from it as you just mentioned all the stigma I came from Taiwan I mean psychologists weren't really a big thing there (laughs) you know if I stayed there I probably wouldn't be a psychologist because it's not really all that accepted even today even though they've made a ton of progress as well and so I even had self-stigma when I was signing up for therapy but I was just thinking you know you can't be Sitting on the other side and treating patients when you've never, ever been on the side of being a patient yourself and sitting in that chair. Mm-hmm. So that was what got me through the door. But I think what got me to stay is, like you said, really making sense of the fact that you don't have to be quote unquote crazy or suffering from mm-hmm. a severe mental illness right. to go to therapy. Right. Professionals can help you through difficult times in your life Mm -hmm. and teach you coping strategies. And I'm very thankful for my experiences Mm -hmm. in therapy.
1: If you need to see a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. and you do need medicine, don't be upset with yourself because it's okay. And it may help in the short term and the long term forever. There are, you know, a number of ways to, to, to treat yourself when you're facing these obstacles. And I feel like some of the more valuable ones, like the ones we're talking about, are the ones people are most afraid of. Right. And, and, then, and then one other thing that yeah. I think has helped me, even though it's, it's, it's led to some criticism of my choices, is not being afraid to pick. Uh, to pursue things that are naturally your passion. So mm. uh, when I stopped cooking at a three-star New York City restaurant and started cooking healthy food and doing triathlons, my chef friends thought I lost my mind because <laughs> they thought I'm was i I'm now going to be a hospital chef. And cooking oh, healthy food was gosh. for hospitals and not for real chefs. And, wow, um, the
0: judgment uh, of the Yeah, so industry. sometimes <laughs> you
1: just have to say, but yeah, but that's what I'm really, that's what's making me feel really good. And if you're lucky enough, you can figure out a way to incorporate it into your, uh, how you earn a living. Yeah. And if you can do that, that's ultimately the best, right, of, of, of all things. So don't be afraid of the judgment that, uh, which I don't think exists too much mm-hmm. uh, now. Everyone has three gigs and a side gig. Mm-hmm. So. People are doing that much more now. So, But but in the 90s, when I left a three-star restaurant to pursue whatever it was that I was pursuing, yeah. people were very confused. And uh, if you're worried about you know, outside reaction, that's always going to be a major roadblock. So you yeah. have to just not care about that.
0: Right. At some point, you have to sort of block that out and do what makes sense to you and what feels good to you. Because I've always um, had a hobby of the performing arts and actually – what you said really spoke to me because I was very heavily judged when I was in my doctoral program and people thought, Oh, but you're doing musicals on the side. Are you serious about your career in psychology? And and I feel like it's okay to have both. It's okay that I like to sing and I like to dance. It's awesome. and, <laughs> and it's fun. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. I'm still very serious yeah. about my psychology career. And in fact, it was that side hobby that really brought everything together for mm-hmm. me. And that's why I've been so blessed and fortunate to have a career as a psychologist in the media, because that's right. really where those two things right, came together for me. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, so I think it's a great message for people. And I think for people who don't know where to start with their self-care, I think of self-care as having five major elements. There's the social piece, Mm -hmm. the emotional, the cognitive where you challenge your brain, the spiritual and the physical. And if you don't know where to start, just think of one activity to do each day mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. nurtures one of those areas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, take care of your body, take care right. of your mind. And, and and pretty soon you start to get into a routine with it. I think it just becomes mm-hmm. a way of life as opposed to, oh, I'm mm-hmm. doing self-care now. Mm-hmm. Here's the 30 minutes where I do yeah. self-care. And it doesn't have to be so robotic. It can be mm-hmm. really free. It can be really all about your passion and maybe mm-hmm. a way for you to find a new hobby, too. Sure. Yeah.
1: Do you find that having a uh, a friend who's also who has similar interests that, that can share your, you know, the hobbies or whatever it is that you choose to enhance your self care are important. Like I have a I have a friend who's really into tea.
0: Oh, and so fun. when I have
1: tea with him, it's absolutely self care, and it's yes. sometimes it feels self indulgent, but it's definitely a great moment for my you know inner outer health. And mm-hmm. uh I, without him, I wouldn't have those experiences. And I know that when I was training for triathlons, my triathlon buddies really made it very easy for me to, so I think seeking out people who have similar interests and take care of themselves really well either in any one of the ways that you described is helpful. I love you know, that idea. Because doing it on your own is, is, is yeah, challenging.
0: And then you kind of have to go into it yourself. So if you have somebody to do it with, then mm-hmm. that's also great because mm-hmm. you get connectivity. You get that social time yeah. with the person you care yeah. about. Plus, you get exposed to a, a new whole arena of things. And yeah. so, and it's so
1: easy to find those people now. Yeah, social media. There, everyone has you know their interests on display on social media. So
0: Exactly. And and don't be afraid of trying something new. So one thing that I really got into last year was horseback riding. Oh and if it fun. wasn't right. Oh great. And oh, my that's best wonderful. friend, my best girlfriend Rides horses now Amazing. semi-professionally for fun, like as her hobby. Wow. But she trains, and wow. she she's going to be in a show in a couple months. Wow. So if it wasn't for her, I don't think yeah. I would have gotten exposed yeah, to that. Probably. So yeah. I think that's a yeah, wonderful yeah, yeah. tip. Well, Chef Rocco, it's thank been you. An honor and a pleasure thank you. to have it's you. Been my honor. Thank and you. your book, Rocco's Keto Comfort Foods Diet, is available wherever books are sold. That's but true. where else can people find you? How can people follow you? Uh, you on, know, on Instagram,
1: on in, uh, all the typical social media stops. I just add my name uh, and uh, I do uh, lots of appearances in New York. So if you're ever in New York, check my social media, there might be a book signing or dinner or something
0: oh fantastic and i need to see that picture of that sea urchin signature dish when we're done with this i need to take a look at that and thank you all for joining and listening to this episode of supercharged life you can follow me at dr judy ho on social media be sure to subscribe download listen and tell your friends about this podcast i'm dr judy now go supercharge your life